Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll read the chapter and then I'll just uh, kind of navigate us into where it fits in the book. But let's read God's word first. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through it until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. And the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down in its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, 
What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Well, let's pray that God will help us understand this. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us by your Spirit and that you would give us hearts to listen and to obey. We pray that in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, last Sunday we began a series in the book of Nehemiah with the title reforming the church. Last week we spent a fair bit of time getting our bearings in the book and you can listen to that introduction online. The introduction is also in the small group Bible study booklets and it's also in the Connect magazine that you can't read at this precise moment but you can read when you go home. So everywhere you look, everywhere you turn, you'll find an introduction to Nehemiah. Now the book of Nehemiah follows on from Ezra. Both books describe the return of the exiles from Babylon. The book of Ezra describes the rebuilding of the temple. The book of Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And alongside that physical rebuilding work, more importantly, is the spiritual work of reformation. In both books, Ezra and Nehemiah, God's people are gathered under the word of God, a little bit like we are now. God's people are gathered together to pray, a little bit like we do on Thursdays once a month. And the covenant, the promise between God and his people and God's people and God is ratified and renewed. So what is the message of Nehemiah? You'll see it uh, summarised in the service sheets. Think of the original readers of this book. Maybe a generation after the events described. Maybe a grandfather teaching his grandchildren from the book of Nehemiah. And the message was, remember. Remember how God graciously brought us out of exile and trust God's promises and obey his words and prayerfully submit to him and keep on reforming and renewing God's people. If the spirit of reformation amongst the people of God is not constant and ongoing, then in no time at all God's people find themselves far from him, doing what is right in their own eyes. Now we've applied that, I guess, to our circumstances when we take occupation of the new building, which we look forward to, and rightly so, and are very thankful for. It would be dangerous of us to stop depending on the Lord when the prayer that you have prayed is answered. You need to keep on depending on him. Keep on seeking to be clear and confident in scripture and in the gospel. So what's the message for us living in the church? 
Well, the message for us as a local church, Chalmers, from Nehemiah, is to look back at God's promised deliverance. Now, for that, for us, that means the deliverance from our sins through Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. The fact that we are forgiven people, the fact that God has reconciled us to himself, the fact that God has called us together to be a church family, a local church, to be God's light in this city. The message of Nehemiah for us is, remember what I have done for you. Trust me. Trust my promises. Trust in my providence. Submit to my words. Pray to me. And be faithful. Now Nehemiah chapter 1 is all about this man in his time. Lifting up his eyes from his own situation. He was in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire, and looking in his mind's eye to Jerusalem, hundreds of miles away, and to the land of Judah, and seeing the spiritual needs of his people in his day. Seeing that the walls needed rebuilt, and the covenant needed renewed, and the word needed to be recovered. And the people needed to pray. He saw it. And he felt it. It moved him. In contrition to pray for God's people. He is a deeply humble man. He knows his God. He sees the need. And he prays. And of course, to this humble man, God entrusted a plan to do something about it. And then we come to chapter 2, which I've entitled Strategic Planning. How he sets about the task of rebuilding the walls and the work of spiritual reformation. Now try to make the connections between chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's a godly man, a humble man, who sees the need, who feels the need, who spends a long period of time in contrition and prayer. And to this man, God gives the ability to think as to how he should respond. And that connection is there. Let me ask a question. What place do vision and strategy have in a church? Or how much attention should we give as a church to vision and strategy? I guess we would all say they have their place for sure. But how much of a place should they have? I guess there are churches that are really focused on strategy where the fundamentals of prayer and the ministry of the word are not the priorities. Or there are churches wholeheartedly committed to prayer and the ministry of the word, but cautious, wary, suspicious, dismissive of strategy or strategic thinking. 
I guess suspicious because they think that strategy and vision is a worldly way of doing church. So what's the answer? And of course one is tempted to say the answer is a balance. I'm never really content though in saying that the answer is a balance. Let me try and give a sharper biblical answer to the question, is there a place for strategy within the church? Well, think of the essentials for a church like Chalmers or the church in this city. What would they be? Prayer, the word of God, the preaching and teaching of the word, evangelism, the local church or local churches in a city is God's primary way of revealing his wisdom in the world. And global mission is another priority. They're the essentials. And strategic thinking in every generation as to how these essentials and priorities are maintained or recovered is vital. It is all through the Bible, the Old Testament and new, God-given wisdom, strategy and vision to churches, to individuals, that these things might be maintained or recovered when they are lost. And so a vision and strategy in a local church to equip a church in evangelism is right. Or a vision and strategy to equip people in a church to teach the Bible that the church might have the word of God released through it is right. A vision and strategy to train church leaders to plant churches is right. In fact, it is illogical For the church to see the need and to feel the need and not think creatively and with vision and with strategy how to respond to the need. Now here's a dark and dangerous thought that I think is not in my mind but might be because none of us truly know our own hearts that we have got it right. That we're on the mark here as a church. That we, or that I and other ministers, see how things really are in the country and God has given us a vision and a plan. If only people would back it. Now, in all honesty, such thoughts, read as they are, are usually overwhelmed with a sense of our inadequacy, unfitness, hypocrisy, the likelihood of it all going horribly wrong. It's hard for me to explain what I mean by that. I've tried a few times in writing it this week. I just don't think that... In Scotland, or in the city here, or in Chalmers, leaders, elders, or many of them in our country, really think they've got the answers, or that they're fit. I think most of us feel our hypocrisy 
and the likelihood of it all going horribly wrong more of the time. I hope that's true. I think it's more tempting when you read a book like Nehemiah to run a mile from thinking strategically than it is to actually embrace it with all the risks that go with it. Now, let's get stuck into the text. And in the first service, I totally messed this up. And looked at my watch, and as you all knew, because you arrived and we were still going, we'd managed to get halfway through point one. But I'll do better now. Verses one to nine. Here's a short, snappy, alliterative title. Nehemiah prayed... Nehemiah acted logically, courageously, and shrewdly, trusting in God's enigmatic providence. Gosh, what does enigmatic mean? We'll get to that in a minute. That's what's going on here, though. Logically, his response was logical and sensible. He perceived the need, he felt the need, he prayed, and he did something. The walls needed rebuilt. And so he planned to rebuild them. And of course he saw beyond the rebuilding of the walls to the spiritual reformation that was needed. That's what he set his mind and heart to. He acted logically. Now, one of the naive ways, I think, to preach or teach a book like Nehemiah is to think that any physical rebuilding work is unnecessary and that all that matters is spiritual rebuilding work. And uh, that every time you see a brick in Nehemiah, that means something spiritual. Well, I think it could do, but it also might mean a, a brick. And Nehemiah is both, isn't it? It's physical stuff and spiritual stuff through it. The temple was a physical structure, but it was for spiritual worship. And the walls were to protect the city. So it's good for us, I think, to embrace as an application of a book like Nehemiah, that it's good to look to the state of things spiritually and, well, build churches. So the church that we are seen to occupy was built in the 1830s as part of a church extension program all over Scotland that saw somewhere around 230 churches built within a very short period of time to put churches into communities where there weren't any. So was that physical building work strategic? Yes, for generations to come, as we are about to discover. And so physical building work is strategic. And I guess that if you had felt as a church that the elders here, pursuit of a building physically to meet in was not strategic, then you would have said so. And in this city and in this country, there needs to be and there are logically plans to open up many buildings to the gospel over the next 50 years. 
Think of the Borders Railway Line. The Borders Railway Line has opened up the borders to the city. The southeast of Scotland development plan sees schools, houses, shops, supermarkets growing over the next 50 years right down that railway line into the borders. Should there be a plan to put church buildings in the borders? Logically, that is perceiving and feeling the need. Yes, but spiritual reformation in them. So Nehemiah was logical, and we should be logical. Second, he was courageous. Just try and get your head around this. Look at verse 1 again. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that's the first question for student lunch. I'm not going to tell you the answer. If any of you can tell me when the 20th year of King Artaxerxes in, I'll give you a million pounds. Don't look it up on your phone now, because I'll know if you've done it. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. And the king said to me, why are you sad? There's nothing wrong with you, so why are you sad? Surely it's sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Why was he afraid? Look, he's the cupbearer, senior civil servant, to the king of Persia. He's about to tell him that he's more concerned for the state of his people in Jerusalem and in Judah. And he... He's not lost his faith and he worships the God of heaven. And please, can you let me leave my duties and go there and sort all of them out so I can restore their glory? O King, live forever. Of course, he's afraid. These kings and rulers in the ancient world were unpredictable in their anger. The most likely result would be. Well, no, or worse. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, I guess it means that to stand up, to stand out for God in a godless world is not safe. We will face opposition from those outside of the church. We will face opposition from inside the church. So there you are, you're sitting trying to work out a plan for a part of the city or even for a church. I have many colleagues as ministers who've gone into churches as ministers, gathered so that the godly elders around them and have thought through a plan to bring the Bible back into the center of that church or to encourage a church to do evangelism, which is logical. But they know they need courage because as soon as they start, it's opposed. If there is a group of churches in this city who are seeking to open up buildings over the next 50 years to the gospel, as you sit there and draw up the plan, you will know that it needs courage because it will be opposed. Nehemiah was afraid. Here's another reason he was afraid, and I've called it trusting in the enigmatic providence of God. Now, what does the word enigmatic mean? Let me tell you the answer to that. That'll not be question two at student lunch. 
I didn't know what enigmatic really meant. Sam sorted me out this week. Enigmatic means kind of doing it in your own way or idiosyncratic or you just don't quite know how someone is going to act. So-and-so is enigmatic in the way they do things. And so is God. So then the king said to me, verse 4, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's grace that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, verse 4. What are you requesting? I prayed to the God of heaven. And Nehemiah's prayer is not a kind of spur of the moment reaction. It's an overflow of four months of fasting and tears, almost like a, all that he has prayed, all these months of praying for a breakthrough, repentance, contrition, spiritual needs of his day. Is this the God-given moment when he needs to put his neck on the line? Is this the moment that he should speak with courage? He thinks it might be, but he can't be certain. Which is why I think he is so frightened. Because he knows there is an enigmatic element to God's providence. Who would have thought, unless you listen to the prophets, that God would put his people into exile and lead them to near extinction in order to bring them back over 70 years to trust him. Only God did it that way. So Nehemiah makes a move. He is bold, he's courageous, he's logical. But he does not do, know what God will do. He does know that God will preserve his people. But he does not know if God will use him. He might be thinking, well, maybe God has called me for such a time as this. And as soon as that thought enters his mind, he's afraid and he thinks, well, maybe not. I think it's fair to say that all we need to do individually or corporately as a church or beyond that in collaboration with others is to do what we do with integrity and in obedience to God's word, with an eye to our godliness. Because if we don't, well, God may, well, probably find some other way, some other plan. His people will never be destroyed. <coughs> but he may just not use us or sideline us. There is an enigmatic nature to God's providence. So on Wednesday night, someone asked the question directly, when are we going to plant a church? Humanly speaking, you might think, and I kind of linked Sam up with that, when he's done two and a half years, whatever, it might just seem right given the timescale of what's going on. But the bottom line is, we don't know. So the answer we gave off the back of that in the end was, when it's right. But that is the right answer. Because God may have other plans. 
all you need to do in our corporate church life, and many of you have only been here for a short time, is think back over the last 10 years. And you can only see God's enigmatic providence in retrospect, never in prospect. You don't know what he's going to do. What we know, though, is that the church needs reformed and revitalized. And we do what we can. And we're attentive to our godliness all the time. And we do what we can, but we accept that God will do things in his way. Let me illustrate that. That's maybe a helpful way by looking back. And I often speak about a man called Dick Lucas. Let me just say who he is in case you don't know him. Dick was probably one of the most influential ministers, I guess, in the 20th century and the early part of the 21st in world evangelicalism and in England and the Anglican Church in particular. He was the minister of St. Helen's Church in London, a big city centre church, and the founder of the Proclamation Trust, Cornhill, which sought to train a whole generation of ministers. And many uh, equivalents have sprung up across the world. Now, as a young man, Dick was called to be the minister of St. Helen's Bishopsgate in the city of London. And there were two things Dick did really well. He preached. And what he also was, and I've been able, by knowing him well over the years, to see behind that who he really was as a person, a deeply godly, prayerful man. There was one other thing, though, about Dick. He had the poshest, plummiest voice you've ever heard. And he had been to a certain English public school. And he came to the city of London to begin a lunchtime service. That was a new thing. And all the people in front of him in the 60s were men in the city in those days. And they had all been to the same narrow group of public schools that Dick had been to, and they all talked like he did. And so all the cultural barriers, and there are a lot of questions about that, were not there. And hundreds were converted, thousands. Dick was the minister of St. Helens, where the Tuesday service was, and for 10 years, there were barely 20 people on a Sunday morning in St. Helens. Ten years. That's two years longer than I've been the minister of this church. I do not think I would have the bottle to keep going for that long before there was any spiritual fruit. But Dick gave himself to prayer and the word, and over time, he would always say that Tuesdays kept him going. Over time... There was a need and there were people coming to him looking to learn how to teach the Bible. And so he began running conferences and then something called the Proclamation Trust was formed. A, a ministry that responded to what was happening, not the other way around. When will you plan a church? When it's right. We can't say it'll be then and then we've got to make it happen. It doesn't work like that. The, the structure came around. But Dick knew then he needed somebody who wasn't an Anglican and who didn't talk like him. So he went to this man in a church in Southampton. His name was David Jackman. 
And at that point in Southampton, David was leading this church, which was strong and vibrant and had grown rapidly. Hundreds and hundreds of people. And Dick persuaded him to leave and join forces with him in London with 12 people in a derelict church building called Cornhill and begin a training course for 12 people that Dick had got together for ministry. And so they did it. Now today we can look back and say, well, it was right because God has used it and blessed it. But back then, these men and others with them saw the need, felt the need, acted logically, courageously, and they trusted in God's enigmatic providence. They didn't know what was ahead. Now, what about us today? Well, as a church here, we invest heavily in lots of ways in training. The Bona Trust has grown, it's got arms and legs. Training ministers, people like Sam and Andy, all the maps. Have we got the answer? Are we the answer to Scotland's spiritual needs? Now, I raise the question as directly as that to raise two things in our minds. One, we face great risk if we think we are, and we face great risk if we think we can do something and don't do it. It's hard to get it right. Which is why at the end of the day, it comes back to our godliness, our humility before the Lord. There's a bit of me that is unnerved, as well as excited, by the fact that God has given us a building right in the middle of Scotland's capital city for the next 100 years. What are we going to do with it? Are we going to think we've got the answer and it will all go horribly wrong? Or are we going to not do anything? Nehemiah was shrewd. He's great. He's like Daniel. As soon as the king responded positively to him, he said, can I have two letters? One that effectively lets me do anything I want and one that gives me everything I need. Can I get all the wood? Was that godless? Or was it shrewd? Daniel didn't fight every battle. Every time... God delivered Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Daniel would say to the king at the end of it, can you just kind of promote my friends a bit more? And God did. And these words at the end of verse 8, for the good hand of my God was upon me. 
God was in it. And we hope God will be in what we do. And let me turn the coin on its head. I hope we will be in what God is doing. So arriving in Jerusalem, verse 11, Nehemiah carefully and discreetly assessed the situation on the ground. So we read from verse 11, he went there at night, he got on his horse with one or two others, and during the night he rode around the walls to see how broken down they were and how they had been destroyed by fire. And I think what's going on here is simply that he is assessing the situation on the ground. So Andy Robertson is away today at his niece's baptism in Dundee. The family are back from Australia. And as you know that Andy and Kyrene will plant a church in Charleston in Dundee in the next year or so. And a lot of Andy's time over the last month has been spent planning, surveying, eyeing up the ground, looking at where the community hubs are in Charleston, where he might live. And what's he been doing? Well, he's got on his horse and has ridden around Charleston, or the equivalent. It's exactly what, it's not something special Nehemiah is doing, it's just sensible. It's what Andy is doing by strategic planning for his church plant. Is that worldly? Or is it sensible? When we go to the church building in Morningside, Cornerstone, as many of you know, is next door. I spend much of my time now in conversations with Neil, the minister. And what, for me, was a a concern that we would be next door to another gospel partnership church has shifted in my mind and in his mind long before mine as to what a striking opportunity it is for two churches, living churches, God willing, together strategically thinking about that whole area of the city. And we discovered this week that there's a third church that's begun meeting on a Sunday afternoon in the hall opposite where we will meet, a black African church. What God will do, what might he be doing? It's exciting. You might not be able to drive through Morningside on a Sunday without seeing people going in and out of churches all of a sudden. Might be some parking issues too, but we'll worry about that later. You don't know what's ahead. All we can do is be faithful and obedient and try our best and and not do nothing. Now, Nehemiah, point three, worked in partnership with others, sharing the work according to different people's gifts. That's a slightly shorter, snappier heading. Now, that's next week's job, chapter three. Notice how very quickly he shifts from him to us. Then I said to them, verse 17, you see the trouble we are in, 
how Jerusalem lies in ruins, come let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Let us rise up and build so they strengthen their hands for the good work. Nehemiah understands that he must secure the commitment, the approval of the local leaders. And God will not have it any other way. He will not allow a minister of a church, or he may for a time because of the minister's pig-headedness, but he will fall on his face. He will not allow a minister of a church or some Christian leader inside a church or some Christian leader in a country or a city to own everything, to be in charge. He needs partnership, humility, relational working together. One of the great and exciting things about this city, evidenced by the reaction of Cornerstone to our arriving on what historically might have been perceived to be their patch in Morningside, is the evidence of gospel partnership. Or partnership in training in Scotland. We interview many people for our MAP programme. Sometimes the right thing to do and pray that we'll be able to do this is to send them somewhere else. To be generous. And partnership in church planting. Chapter 3, next week, we'll talk about how God has called us all to share our gifts in his strategy. And then finally... Nehemiah reacted strongly to early signs of opposition. Chapter 4, 5, 6 of Nehemiah. How would I describe chapters 4, 5, and 6? Simple four-letter word, flack. Just opposed from all sides. And here we get it in chapter 2 verse 10, Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab. I suspect that over the months, Nehemiah dreamed at night of Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab. They just opposed his work. So let me just put it into contemporary parlance. Do you think if in this city, Edinburgh, or Glasgow, or a rural, a more rural town in Scotland. A group of people had a, a strategy to plant 50 churches. Do you think everyone would be delighted? I don't think so. I'm not sure that everyone will be delighted in Morningside when there are two living gospel churches working on a Sunday and through the week. But I guess for Nehemiah it would have encouraged him. Opposition is an authenticating mark. But he straight the eye, verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now that might lead you to think that Nehemiah is a bit arrogant 
that kind of phrase. He's not. He's straight. He's clear. He's confident in his God. What he's effectively saying is that God will build his church. And if you oppose it, well, you'll have no place in the city, which means, I guess, you'll have no place in the eternal city. Now, let me finish by saying this. As we look towards the new building, on the first Sunday we are in it, God willing, and it means that we do need to get in it on this first Sunday, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 10. So turn to chapter 10. Here's a preview. And if we're not in it on the 5th of March, our preaching programme goes horribly wrong. Just to say, as you look at chapter 10, we will spend a short time on the first little section. What Nehemiah chapter 10 is, is the renewal of the covenant. So what we'll be doing by application is saying, look, as a church, we renew our commitment to God, to his word, to prayer, to the gospel, and to obedience. And rightly, the first sermon in a new building will be about prayer and the ministry of the word. But... Let us also be open to strategy and vision that God lays on our hearts and do everything we can to work for the spiritual reformation of this city and this nation. God has given us a great base, a great building to help us do that. He has given us a great bunch of people. He has given us experience and history that is unusual. He has given us a very clear sight that he will preserve his church. And if he gives us strategy and vision, let's run the risk of it all going horribly wrong. Let's accept that God may do it in an entirely different way. Let's be very circumspect in relation to our godliness and our lives and our humility. But let's not miss the opportunities that God has so patently and clearly set before us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this chapter in your word. Thank you for the example of Nehemiah, who acted logically, courageously, shrewdly, trusting in your promise, who assessed the situation, who worked in partnership, shared the work, and who was not swayed by opposition. We pray, Lord, that you would lay on our hearts whatever it is you would want us to do and help us to do it. And we pray that we would be godly enough to be 
trusted with that work. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.